0: so titus chapter one we are going to focus on verses 10 through 16 so the last time i spoke uh trying to remember it was a few months ago uh we went through the uh, first nine verses here Uh, so i'm going to do a a bit of a recap uh with that and then we're going to focus on uh, verses 10 through 16 here so i'm gonna go ahead and read all the way uh, from the beginning of the chapter here so uh, to the very end. So, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, God's word says this Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time revealed his word in the proclamation which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accustomed to "'indecent behavior, or rebellion. "'For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, "'not self-willed, not quick-tempered, "'not overindulging in wine, not a bully, "'not greedy for money, but hospitable, "'loving what is good, self-controlled, righteous, "'holy, disciplined, holding firmly to the faithful word "'which is in accordance with the teaching.'" so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. Verse 10, For there are many rebellious people, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, for this testimony is true. For this reason, reprimand them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for every good deed. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, just, uh, we come before You. We give thanks. We give thanks for this time. We give thanks for the Word uh, that You have given to us, Lord, to enlighten us, to give us wisdom. And certainly, all wisdom, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ, Lord. And so, it's through that that we have transforming power. And, Lord, we just pray that uh, you would be uplifted, that you would be glorified tonight. I pray that you just bless this time. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So, the. Last time I spoke, we went through the first nine verses, Um, and I feel like since it's been such a while that uh, we should probably do a little bit of a recap on it. So the very first three verses here, you have Paul, um, his uh, traditional greeting that he normally gives uh, with his uh, his letters. You see him in uh, verse four who he is writing to here. He's writing to Titus. He says he's my true son in the common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And verse 5 moves on to what he is commissioned to do. These are the tasks that uh, Titus has been given to do uh, by Paul. And we looked into that. And then from there, verse 6 through verse 9, we talked about uh, the qualifications of elders. We see that's very important um, because... Without established leadership, without proper leadership in the church, you're going to see exactly what happens to the church. And this is the problem that we have in Crete right here is these churches, they lacked leadership. There was a void in the leadership. And so that gave rise to a lot of false prophets uh, that had come in, obscured the gospel, and had led people astray. And so the first thing I want to get into is just who exactly is Titus? Who is he? There's not a whole lot that's said in Scripture about him. But what is said, I think, can give us some insight on who he is, um, what kind of character he had. Uh, Galatians 2 and 3 says that he was uh, a Greek, that he was a Gentile believer. Uh, Titus 1 of 4 says that Um, We we can see here that Paul had a very special relationship with Titus. Uh, He calls him his true son in the faith. Uh, Titus was a disciple of Paul. Um, He was uh, later a co-laborer with Paul uh, in his ministry. You see that Titus was uh, one of the ones uh, that accompanied Paul and and Barnabas to the Jerusalem council. uh, That's noted in uh, Acts chapter 15. And Titus uh, played a very important role there because um, the main issue behind the Jerusalem Council was that did, the, did believers have to be circumcised to be saved? And of course, Titus being a Gentile believer was living proof that the rite of circumcision was not necessary for salvation, right? Later we see Titus, he played a very important role in helping out um, Paul and solving a lot of the problems with the Corinthian church. Uh, Last year we went through uh, in Sunday school. We went through First and Second Corinthians. Uh, We see uh, what the what a vital role Titus played in that. In that he helped the Corinthian church uh, establish reestablish a a relationship with Paul. He helped solve a lot of problems uh, that were in uh, the church in Corinth there. So, and Paul says that he was. Uh, he was a trusted man. Paul calls him my partner and fellow worker in 2 Corinthians 8 and 23. Titus was somebody who had a genuine care and love for the Corinthian believers here, despite many of the issues that were in the Corinthian church. Uh, one could easily have given up on that church because there were so many problems. But yet it says that in 2 Corinthians eight sixteen and 17, it says that with much enthusiasm... He went on his own initiative to the Corinthian church to help solve these problems. So we can conclude here that Titus was a man of strong character. Uh, he's a man to be admired. He was a faithful servant. He was a man uh, who could be trusted. He was an effective leader. He was a peacemaker. He had a genuine love and care for the church. And he was somebody who was very familiar with and skilled in dealing with the, hel- the heresies that had infiltrated the church, particularly in the Corinthian church. These same heresies were also found in the churches in Crete. Okay, So um, it's not a surprise here that Titus would have been considered the perfect man for this job, so to speak. And Titus was a very important man, along with Timothy, because those two men right there were to carry on what Paul was going to leave behind okay so he had raised up paul had raised up faithful men to continue in this next generation titus and timothy were those men and so to get on here to verse 5 with his commission and so exactly what was he uh, what was he to do in the island of crete here it was really a twofold task first he was to appoint elders in the church the second task was to confront and to remove false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And, of course, this was not uh, going to be a very easy task. As one commentator described it, he says that Timothy uh, had to be a rock in a hard place. And the island of Crete was definitely known to be a hard place. It was known by its uh, cultural depravity. The people who lived there were very infamous of being liars. To be a liar was commonly known by the word cretizo, which means to be a Cretan. Not something you want to put on your resume. But of most cities, they were plagued by violence, by greed, by sexual corruption. And the churches there were saturated saturated with false prophets. And so Titus was to be uh, this rock. You know, he was needed to be the one to confront these people, uh, to expose the errors and to proclaim truth. And so it's not exactly uh, sure how the gospel reached uh, Crete, although Acts 2 and 11 does say that there were Cretans who had visited Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And there were likely those who had been converted by the preaching of the Apostle Peter. And of course, when they went back uh, to their homes, they likely had started a church. And we know that Paul had landed on Crete during his fourth missionary journey, and he likely saw what the condition of the church was at that time, particularly that it lacked leadership. There was a void in leadership there. And so this is a prime example of why proper leadership must be established in the church. It needs to be men of character, those who hold to the faithful word, who teach sound doctrine. And by the way, this is something that Paul uh, would always do before he left the church, is he would always appoint elders. There's three things that he would do when he would come into a new place. He would preach the gospel, he would establish a church, and before he left, he would appoint elders those that were qualified to lead. And so seeing this leadership void in the church, Paul sends Titus to complete this task, this task that was left unfinished. And so to look at the purpose of this letter, uh, as I said before, this next generation here was going to be Titus to carry on the gospel to help establish these churches. And so it was a sort of a passing on of the baton, uh, so to speak. And so it was designed, this letter is designed to help uh, equip, to strengthen him for this task that he's going to have at hand right here. So, And it's also a letter here that is to arm Titus with an authoritative document. Paul establishes his apostolic authority here in this letter. And if you can see here in the verse, first three verses, he says, "Paul, a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God in the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, but at the proper time revealed His word in the proclamation, which I was an entr- entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior." And so, Paul is making it clear here that he's passing his apostolic authority on to Titus. instructing him to function, to uh, direct it uh, as, as it should be directed. And so Titus being a young man, Paul knew that he was going to face opposition. So this was one purpose of this letter, to show that his authority here is going to be delegated to Titus. And if anybody tries to go around Titus, they're going to have to deal with Paul. And Paul has his authority from Christ, right? So third reason, it's really for us now. It's it's a model of how the church, this whole letter, this pastoral letter here, is a model of how the church should operate. Um, It gives us a model of how the church should function, how to be a strong church. It deals with qualifications for spiritual leadership, deals with false prophets, it confronts sin, it spells out roles and spiritual obligations of those in the church, uh, in the family. Practical implications of our salvation and how to live godly in a godless world, to be, uh, to be an effective witness, to live pure lives. And so the last time we discussed the importance of the spiritual uh, leadership in the church, verses 6 through 9, and so now we're going to move on here to verses 10 through 16 here, where Paul gives uh, instruction on dealing with these false prophets in the church. And Paul makes it clear here that people, these people must be dealt with in the church. Otherwise, it's, the consequences are devastating. This reminds me of somebody that I know that spoke about he was a U.S. soldier uh, who served in the war in Iraq. This was during the early 2000s. And he told me just some of the challenges that they faced there. And one of the challenges was was just the ability to identify the enemy. They didn't know who the enemy was because they were insurgent. It was an insurgency. And so they weren't sure who they were. They knew that they were among them but they didn't know who they were. It could have been the person who was helping you give, uh, helping give you directions during the daytime. It could have been the person uh, that was selling you food in the marketplace, and it was that same person who was firing rocket-propelled grenades at you on the rooftop at night. And so, <clears throat> on one occasion, and you may be familiar with it. It was back in two thousand and four. I believe it was one of the military bases up in Iraq. And uh, it was um, an insurgent who had, it was an enemy insurgent who came into a military installation, into a military base. He went into the cafeteria at the busiest time of the day. He got his food tray and he walked into the middle of the cafeteria and blew himself up. And ended up killing 23 people. Twenty-three people, among them 13 U.S. soldiers. So you can see how devastating that was. And that was a time when everybody had let their guard down, and really understandably so, because there would have been no thought or expectation that the enemy was among them at that point right there. But that reminds me spiritually of what the church is in, the condition the church is in right now. You see, the church is asleep. It's the same challenge because many churches don't even realize that the enemy has infiltrated in disguise. Jesus says in Matthew 7 and 15, He says, Beware of false prophets who come in you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False prophets are as dangerous to our souls as ravenous wolves are to a flock of sheep. And so Christ says again in Mark 13 what it's going to be like before His return. Six times, He says, in this passage, He says, be on the alert, take heed, see to it, be on guard. It's the dominant theme of this passage here. In Mark 13, 5 and 6, he says, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying I am Christ and will mislead many. So we need to live with discernment. We need to live with a heightened awareness of what's going on around us. We need to see, not just see, but to understand and to see with discernment and to respond with wisdom. I can relate to that as as a job as a police officer. It is critical that I have discernment. In my training, we talk about 12 deadly errors. One of those deadly errors is ignoring danger signs. If I ignore danger signs, I potentially could be in a lot of trouble. So I need to know that beforehand. Not every danger presents itself immediately. There are signs that you come across, and as a police officer, you have to be trained to know not just what the person is saying to you, but what are they saying with their body language, right? Now, believe it or not, people tend to lie to police officers. I know it's a shock to you, right? <laughs> But as a police officer you have to look beyond that you have to see what are they saying with their body language right you need discernment so that you can and I remember there's been times where I've seen those danger signs and I've been able to call for help beforehand and I was thankful that I did because I knew that if I didn't by myself taking care of that there's a lot of guys that think that they can handle things on their own but I'm telling you It's difficult one-on-one. And so, I just see that, you know, just relating that to my job on a spiritual sense here. Paul gives the same warning here to the elders of the Ephesians here, before he leaves. Acts 20 and 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. So he says, verse 30, therefore, be on alert. So how can we be on alert spiritually? Well, Titus chapter 1, verse 9 gives us that answer here. He says, holding firmly to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. So holding firm to the faithful word so that you're able to exhort in sound teaching and refute those who oppose it. And so Paul was certainly right about these savage wolves coming in amongst them and that problem was widespread. You see it in the Corinthian church, you see it uh, in the Galatian church, you see it in the, in the Ephesian church. Which is why Timothy was given the same, the same command. I was discussing uh, with my son, I was discussing James 3 a few weeks back. Just about the tongue and about lies about how a lie can start. It could be a small fire, but yet it can devour an entire forest. It's devastating. It's something that can cause great destruction. It's such a small thing, but it causes a very big impact. Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue death and life from the power of the tongue. So in this context, Paul says that these lies, these lies are upsetting whole families in the church. Devastating result. Therefore they must be silenced. And I think this is a relevant text today, you know. Sadly, we see lies here. I mean, there's so many lies in the culture. We see them infiltrating into the church here. And these people that are in the church are not being silenced. In fact, they're giving a greater platform. God wants his church to speak the truth. We're a pillar in support of the truth. And for that truth to be, compl- uh, to be proclaimed, there are people that have to be silenced. And so this is a very important instruction for Titus here. So how do you do this? How, how, do you, uh, how, you do, how do you silence those who should not speak in the church? Well, it's two things here. You got uh, what Jesus did with the Sadducees. What did he do? He overpowered them with Truth. He did it to the point where no one even dared ask him a question. 1 Peter 2.15 also gives us uh, the answer to this. We silence them by holy living. He says in that verse, For such is the will of God that you do the right, that you, by doing right, may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So with false teachers, when you look at their life, you find a lack of virtue. Their life is filled with sin because air cannot produce righteousness. Okay, so in this text here, you're going to see four four insights here related to these false prophets here. And I'll just give them to you briefly here. Uh, number one here, description of what these men are like God gives them uh, uh, Paul through this letter here describes what these men are like number two what is the effect of their teaching on others number three gives uh, the motive of their work and number four uh, there's an evaluation uh, of these men evaluation of these men so first here uh, description of these men what are they uh, personally what is their behavior like Verse 10 here, so for for many of them are rebellious people, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And so rebellious uh, really means those who are ungovernable, unruly, uncontrollable, those who refuse to submit to the authority of God. Instead, they have a law to themselves. It's really no different than what you find in Judges 21 where Israel Uh, did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. It's really a comparative text there. Number two, empty talkers. What they say is just worthless, worthless nonsense. And so the root word of uh, of this word here really means idol worship. And it's specifically worship that produces no righteousness, nothing of eternal value whatsoever. 1 Timothy 1 and 6, Paul refers to this as fruitless discussion. It's all designed to impress, but it completely lacks any substance at all. Number three here, deceivers. They deceive those that are around them. They use bible language. They're familiar with Christian buzzwords. I came across this quote from Henry Beecher, I thought this was pretty good related to this. He said, Whatever is almost true is the most is among the most dangerous of errors, because being so near to the truth, it is more likely to lead astray. That was a good quote. And so to finish here, verse 10, it says a description of these men, especially those of the circumcision. So who are these people that are of the circumcision? Well, these are men that uh, is recorded in Acts 15 and 1. It said some men came down from Judea, began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so these were the same men who disrupted the Galatian church. And Paul referred to them in Galatians 2 as the circumcision party, which was a Jewish sect that claimed to be Christian. They believed in the Messiah, but they were also legalists. They said that you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised, unless you uh, maintain the Mosaic ceremonial law but they were also influenced by Greek culture um, and their teaching had uh, a bit of a Gnostic tone to it um, as it relates to, uh, as it mentions here in verse 14 about Jewish myths. So they claim to have secret knowledge. Uh, They claim that they knew God at some higher level. Um, They claim that you cannot know God unless uh, you ascend to the level that they're at. it really, all it is is a matter of pride. It's always Christ plus something else. It's Christ plus works, Christ plus elevated knowledge. And all this does is, all this amounts to is it's a denial of, this, of the all-sufficient work of Christ. All-sufficient work of Christ. We've got to get one thing clear. There's only one gospel. Only one way to heaven. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. By that statement right there, Christ has eliminated any possible way to heaven, any other possible way. No man can come to the Father except through me. That's why he says, I am the door. He's the only door. And so this is why Paul makes it clear. He makes a clear command here that these people must be silenced. Must be silenced. And so verse 11, these men who must be silenced, which means to be gagged, to be muzzled, because why? Because they're upsetting whole families. And so this is the effect here, number two here. This is the effect of the teaching uh, that their teaching has on others. And it doesn't say just one or two members of the family. It says whole families. It's affecting every single member of the family. And this word upsetting here is in present tense, indicating that it's a continual habitual work going into homes and undermining their faith. And that's one thing that false teachers tend to do is they attack you when you're isolated. It's easier to attack you when you're isolated. 2 Timothy 3 says, In the last days difficult times will come. He says there will be men who oppose the truth, men of depraved mind who will reject the faith. These men will enter households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, and led on by various impulses. They take advantage of women with guilt, with problems that they can't resolve. And so look at today. How do they enter households today? It's easier than ever. By television, Internet. Their access to people is greater than it's ever been. And plus you're in an isolated environment right there. One commentator says this. He says, "The greatest influence on the worldview of most Americans is the media. The television is not the only, is not only the dominant medium of popular culture, but it's also the most significant shared reality in our entire society. These are things that have greater power over our lives of most people. Than any educational system, government, or church. And so many watch television or they view things on the internet without any ability or desire to discern what they're even watching. A.W. Tozer says this he says, most people think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We're not here to fight, but to frolic. And so keep in mind here that the media, the media has an agenda. They're not neutral. Everything we view is somebody's idea. And that person has a worldview. And we need to be mindful of that. Some of the worst things that I've seen are cartoons. And that, that impresses upon me as a father that I need to be watching more of what my kids watch because they're not going to discern. I do that, I have to do that for them. And so there are agendas out here that are attempting to infiltrate the minds of our children without them ever realizing that they are becoming more and more conformed to the world around them. And we don't even think of the effect that it has on their hearts, on our hearts, for that matter. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to say that it's, it's bad to watch TV, you shouldn't watch TV. What I'm saying is is the hazard here is thoughtless watching, thoughtless watching. We need to watch with discernment. But sadly, that's a time where we usually, that's where our brains usually shut down, and we lose our ability to discern what we are watching. So glorifying God is an intentional pursuit. Personal holiness is something that we don't drift into. We mature gradually and purposefully, one choice at a time. 1 Peter 5 and 8 says it speaks to this battleground that we have in our mind here. He says, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So the third one here is motive. What's the motive that these false teachers have? That's the end of verse 11 here. It says, Teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain That's dishonest gain. One commentator I read here says that they're profits for profit. They're in it for the money. That's what drives them. And if there's no money, there's no enticement to even do it. And you look at the elder qualifications here in verse 7. It says, not fond of sordid gain, of dishonest gain. 1 Timothy says that the potential elder must be free from the love of money. And it's because the issue here is that money could potentially dictate how you operate as a, as a pastor. And so when you see your position as a teacher, as a career designed for personal advancement, for profit, that's a very dangerous condition to be in because it leaves you susceptible to compromise. And so that's why they have to be free of the love of money. Verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, Doing some research on this, this was one of their own pagan prophets, Epimenides, I hope I pronounced that right, Epimenides, who lived in the 6th century here before Christ. And I thought, since he was a Cretan, maybe what he said was a lie too. But Paul says he says this statement's true, so we'll take this as as a true statement. He says they're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, evil beasts. Here really describes their actions like wild animals. They live solely at the level that their depraved sensual appetite and passions drive them. A lazy gluttons. It's very interesting. This was a Greek word argos which means unemployed stomachs. They wish to eat without working to earn their living. They hated to work but loved to eat being self-indulgent. And so Paul says, verse 13, this testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith here. Uh, There's two words here that i focused in on. For this cause, reprove. Reprove them severely. Okay, So reprove here is to correct by bringing the truth to light. Essentially the same thing what Jesus did with the Sadducees. He overcome them with truth. You're bringing the truth to light. In correcting them. And so Paul instructs Timothy here in the same way. He says, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and in instruction. Right? So the other word here, severely, is in a manner that's firm and forceful, just like what Bob said uh, earlier today, is that you have to deal with this firmly and forcefully. We're gentle with people, but when it comes to the gospel being attacked, we have to act firmly and we have to act forcefully. And so Paul is saying to Titus here that they need to be corrected in a firm and forceful way by bringing the truth of God's word to light so that the other person is compelled to see and admit their error of their ways with the goal that they may be sound in the faith. And if they refuse to be silent, you cut them off. You separate, disassociate yourself from them because truth and error cannot coexist. Cannot. Verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And so, like I said before, uh, discuss this. This really just gives some insight as to what they taught, the things that they taught here. Jewish myths, it's really just a mixture of Jewish traditions and Greek philosophy. These were people who lived in areas that were dominated by uh, Greek uh, philosophy. And so they were were always searching for some hidden, some deeper, elevated meaning when you had clear, plain text, of God's word. And so it was really a pride issue. You know, they thought, you know, we've elevated ourselves to this great level and, you know, we're so much higher than you and you need to listen to us in order to achieve this level. Which, of course, the truth is that all treasures of knowledge and wisdom are found in who? It's found in Christ, right? The other thing here, commandments of men, which is just legalism, things that were commanded as officially binding on the believer. And again, that's just a rejection of the all-sufficient work of Christ. It's of no value. It produces no righteousness in the believer's life. And so Paul reminded the Colossians here in chapter 2. He says, Do not submit themselves, not to submit themselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These were in accordance with the commandments of teaching, teachings of men. They have the appearance of wisdom, but have no value against fleshly indulgence. And so, like I said before, pride is the issue here. Because the last part of verse 14 says that they have turned away from the truth. They have made a willful choice to stop listening. And Paul refers to these same kind of people in 2 Timothy 4, where it says there's going to be a time where people who can't endure sound doctrine, but they're going to turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So we looked at God's description of these men, the effect of their teaching, their motive, why they do what they do. And so the last thing here is God's evaluation of these men. And he evaluates them here uh, in two ways. He evaluates them in verse 15 inwardly. And in verse 16, he uh, evaluates them outwardly. Verse 15 here, he says, To the pure All things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They believe that if you kept all the ceremonies, the traditions, the rituals, followed all their commandments, you can make yourself pure on the inside. But if you violated any of these things, you became uh, defiled before God, essentially saying that what you do on the outside is going to affect you on the inside. Which the reality is the opposite. Jesus says here in Mark 7 that there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. So what Paul is saying here is that your, your, whole, your whole approach is wrong toward this. There's nothing that you can do on the outside to make your inside pure. Nothing whatsoever. Christ has to be the one that cleans you on the inside. And then that takes care of the outside. And so to the pure, all things are pure. If you're pure on the inside, meaning that you're right with God, then everything that you do is pure. So the issue is what's on the inside. The issue is that we need a new heart. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, The heart is the seat of true religion. The true Christian is the Christian in heart. But he says, But those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. For both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And so if the inside is defiled, then everything you touch is defiled as well. You can keep all the ceremonies that you want. If your inside is defiled, then that very ceremony that you perform is defiled. You desecrate God by the very ceremony that you do in the name of God. And so that you make it impure so that in the name of God, uh, it's actually a mockery of God. And so he says here that both their mind and their conscience are both defiled. And so he, he's trying to, to make the point here is the depth of their depravity. The depth of their defilement here. They say that, he says here the mind and the conscience. The mind being the intellect, and then the conscience refers to our ability to discern. That's uh, our sense of right and wrong. So we can't, uh, when it's defiled, we can't make a moral judgment. We can't make a true judgment. We can't, uh, our sense of right and wrong is defiled. And we cannot make a moral judgment. It's very similar to what it says in Romans. They turned away from the truth. They reject God. What does God do? God hands them over. It's a form of judgment where now he's handing them over to a depraved mind. It's really uh, speaking um, the same thing here. It's a mind that cannot function properly. And so the point here behind this whole statement is that we need to be clean on the inside. And only one person can do that. That's Christ. And so that was the inward evaluation. The outward evaluation here, uh, Paul gives us here in verse 16. It says that they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good. This corresponds to Matthew 7 and 16, where he says that you'll know them by their fruit. Their deeds will prove whether they're a true believer or not. For false prophets, by their deeds, they deny them. That's why you see a lot of uh, charlatans on TV. Why is that? Well, there's a barrier there. You, you, can't, you can't get to them. You can't, see, you can't see their life. You can't see what they're like behind the screen. because they hold to an appearance of godliness, but they deny the power to live it out. And so this is why they must be silenced. It says that they're detestable, they're disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And so that finishes the chapter. The Actually, the next verse here, chapter 2, verse 1, really is the conclusion here. It brings it all together. If you look at verse 1 in chapter 2, he says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. It's of vital importance to the church. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm uh, just looking at this text, Lord. I'm most thankful for this church, Lord, that we are a pillar in support of the truth, Lord. I just thank you for your protection on this church. Thank you for our elders, Lord. As we see the condition here of the churches in Crete, what they became from a void in leadership, we see that the elders have such a vital role in the health of the church. Lord, I just thank you for their oversight, their diligence, careful study of the word, their teaching and sound doctrine, Lord. Not holding back from teaching hard truths. Lord, we see also from this text just how important it is uh, to have discernment. We are certainly in a battle. And there are forces working behind the scenes to try to capture our hearts and minds to try to lead us away from the truth, Lord. Lord, I just pray that we're faithful. We're committed to that truth, not to be silent to that truth. So we live in a time where truth is very unpopular, Lord. And I just pray, give us courage and strength to stand firm in that truth, Lord. I just thank you for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.